Hello friends, welcome to Beyond the News. It's Friday the 20th of October. Coming up on today's show, we're going to be paying a great deal of attention to Andrew Bridgen's speech in the Houses of Parliament on excess deaths here in Britain. Both of the clips that I'll be playing to you today are coming via John Campbell, but it's Andrew Bridgen that uh, will be doing a lot of the talking. We're going to be listening to him talk to to John about what he wants to achieve. This was an interview recorded yesterday. And then we're going to see his uh, historic account. I haven't watched it yet, so it'll be a first for me because it only happened a few hours ago. And both are coming via John Campbell's YouTube channel. Also going to be looking at other types of uh, 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 chemicals and how they can affect the human body. And we're also going to be looking at potential dangers of population collapse along the Western world, looking at the numbers based on birth rates and such things. There's a guy that's very good at that kind of stuff that I'll be playing a clip from him afterwards. So let's get straight into it today and go to Dr. John, who will be interviewing Andrew Bridgen with what this interview was recorded yesterday with what he wanted to achieve in today's debate. Now, Mr. Andrew Bridgen, Member of Parliament in the United Kingdom, has secured a debate tomorrow about excess deaths. And we were lucky enough to be able to secure an interview with Mr. Bridgen just in the last hour. And here is that interview. Thank you for watching. Well, a warm welcome to this talk. Today it's Thursday, the 19th of October, and I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Andrew Bridgen, Member of Parliament. Andrew, thank you for coming back. It's a pleasure, John. Now, we mentioned it's the 19th of October today. Something's happening on the 20th of October tomorrow. Very important. Uh, please, please fill us in, Andrew. Well, tomorrow is a sitting day. We don't normally sit on a Friday, but it's private members' bills. And I'm actually pleased to say that um, Christopher Chope, um, Conservative MP for Christchurch, he's secured a large number of private members' bills. So it's basically his day. And uh, several of them are around the issue of vaccine harms and compensation. And I'm hoping to be able to take part in those debates as well and give Chris a lot of support. But I have managed to secure, after nine months of petitioning and more than 20 refusals, uh, the adjournment debate. So at around 2.30 tomorrow afternoon, I'll be on my feet. And for the first time in the UK Parliament, and I think the first time in the world, we're going to have a debate. It's only going to be for 30 minutes. Uh, on excess deaths um, mm -hmm. so and I can tell share with you John that um, there will be more colleagues from the house in that chamber and a lot of that is down to your efforts and your viewers and your your uh, subscribers who've petitioned MPs across the country uh, I would think that's the issue has been number one quite rightly in their inbox this week are you attending the excess deaths debate on Friday and a number of them will be you mentioned a vaccine there. Which vaccine were you talking about? We're talking about the experimental mRNA COVID-19 vaccines and also AstraZeneca, um, which uh, I don't know if you've heard about it, but there is a bit of concern about the safety and efficacy of them. Oh, right. OK. OK. So it's, it's good to know that's bit that's being discussed. I'm delighted that, that uh, you and Sir Christopher Chopra have got that. But, but surely uh, this can't be a one-off debate. This, be, this must be a series of debates because it's such an important topic. Well, I will be asking uh, all those members who attend and those who have shown any interest but couldn't attend tomorrow's debate that we petition the House for a much longer debate. And we could easily get a three-hour backbench debate uh, pretty quickly, I thought, within a couple of weeks. 
if there's the will to do so. And I'm hoping after I've laid out the facts, um, it, it will be a fairly long speech. Uh, I think I'll be speaking for over 20 minutes of the 30 minutes, leaving the minister 10 minutes to respond. But since that will be a pre-scripted uh, response that probably won't answer any of my questions that I pose in the chamber, I think that'll, that will be enough. Uh, but the answer is to, is to get the support of colleagues. And that will come again through um, the, the, the lobbying and support of, of their constituents who see this as an important matter. And I'm also fairly confident, although the attendance in the chamber might be not what I'd like, I, I think the public gallery is going to be full, John, and that's, uh, that's a testament to what this means to the people. And I do realise, um, although I'm a very experienced politician, that this is the most important speech I've probably ever given in my life, and uh, I do feel the weight of responsibility. Indeed, indeed. Now, of course, we expected excess deaths in 2020 during the pandemic, but then they persisted in 2021, 2022. And the last time I looked at the OEC data, um, it was 36,000 excess deaths in the UK for the first 30 weeks of the year. This has been going on for 2021, 2022, first two and a half years now. Why is this the first parliamentary debate on the matter surely this should be the top of the government's agenda well obviously clearly uh, perhaps you and i have concerns that the excess deaths that we've seen since the pandemic when we should have had historically you'd have expected a period of less than excess deaths since you know sadly those who've passed can't die again um i think there's so much political capital by all the major political parties around the world that they you know, do not want to even consider they might not have given good advice to people during the pandemic, whether that's about the lockdowns or the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. Uh, and especially since we've almost certainly got a general election in the next 12 months, yeah. um, the amount of political capital invested in this by all the major parties, they just don't want to talk about it. Mm. And not only that, my colleagues, a lot of them uh, across the chamber, Every time I raise something which they don't want to talk about, uh, clearly the public are interested. Their own constituents then contact them and email them and talk to them about it. And uh, they tend to think that they'd be rather better off if I wasn't in Parliament asking these questions because then they wouldn't get such, uh, be forced to debate such items, issues with their own constituents. You know, you know I, what I think you're doing, Andrew, is I, I think you are representing those who can't speak for themselves. That This is what our politicians should be doing, that, that they should be representing the weak. And of course, people that have already died, sadly, can't speak for themselves. And uh, you're, you're giving a voice to those that have died during this tragic past few years. And I mean, I, I want to say thank you. And I, and I know that I don't know, I don't want to exaggerate, tens of thousands of families around the country. Well, um, since, I, appreciate it. since I first spoke out, um, which is sort of last December, um, I mean, John, John, I've had hundreds of thousands of emails from the vaccine harmed and the vaccine bereaved, not only from the UK, but from all around, all around the world. And um, I would like to say that my parliamentary staff have worked really hard and that they've responded to every single one. Yeah. Now, you mentioned there might be a few MPs there. We've been disappointed um, in the past. We've noted that House has been quite busy for some issues like, oh, I don't know, discussing members' pay, for example, and uh, essentially empty when you were discussing things of massive concern. Um, 
I mean, realistically, how many people can we expect to turn up? Given given that, I'm pretty convinced from the publicity that we've been able to get from uh, th this channel. I'd be I, surprised if there wasn't one elected member I in the country who's that, not been uh, emailed. You know, asking people to attend, MPs to attend this debate on Friday has been the number one issue um, in most of their inboxes all week. Uh, I would say there's been tens of thousands of emails have come. Um, a, a large number of people have actually emailed me with the response uh, from their own MP, which has been fairly enlightening. Um, what I would say is that um, although there are some who maintain the, you know, the best thing since sliced bread has been the rollout of the experimental vaccines, uh, other colleagues are certainly moving their position and they are actually now in writing willing to question whether there may be something wrong with the vaccines. That, that, is, that is clear movement. And I don't get so many people saying they're safe and effective anymore to me. And we can't speculate, of course, on market fluctuations, but it looks like the financial markets are... Well, it wouldn't be hard to be ahead of, of, of our parliament on the vaccines, to quite honestly, uh, John. Um, but, I mean, the same happened when I exposed the modern slavery uh, in 2019 in Leicester. There was a, a full investigation. But, I mean, the, uh, the company who was at the centre of it, I mean, I think their, their share price was £4.50 when I made my allegations. Um, I think it's around 60p today. And that's another topic we've covered on the channel, which is, of course, of... Uh just immeasurable concern to anyone who claims to claim, have any care for humanity uh, at all. Now, um, has there been mass academic interest around the country about the topic of excess death? Um, I, I've been having some great support from Dr. Claire Craig and Professor Norman Fenton, good friends of your channel, who've uh, also helped me immeasurably with all the statistics and also the press pack that will be going out when I sit down, uh, every uh, mainstream media, uh, press, TV channel, newspaper will get a full evidence press pack of all the data that supports the assertions I've made. I know that if I get anything wrong, they'll, they'll only want to concentrate on that one item. So I have to make sure I get everything right in this speech or I'll get shot to pieces. And, and uh, the support of those mm. eminent uh, scientists and doctors is immeasurable. But I've also been approached by someone who claims that they've got a petition signed by, uh, I think, 16,000 doctors and scientists supporting me. And I'm hoping that I can present that as a petition in Parliament next week, which will be a, another opportunity to highlight this important issue. So presumably these, the, these uh, famous professors and doctors that, that you mentioned are uh, being paid by the government as official government advisors. No, uh, these are all independent. Of course, the moment you put your head above the parapet, as, as, as we know, uh, you're, you're shot at and, and cancelled. So, I mean, I think that is one of the major, major, major indicators that all those who are speaking out are doing it for no financial reward. In fact, there's a huge deficit for them. Uh, Professor Norman Fenton has lost his position at St Mary's University. He was forced into retirement. Um, I mean, it's um, these are the people we want running our education and medical institutions uh, not necessarily the ones we've got now, I'm afraid. You know, what, what moves me about this, Andrew, is, is the best people are doing this for nothing. For, well, for less for less than nothing. It's yeah, costing, yeah. It's costing uh, for, me for, time. For, for, harm, yeah. harm to themselves, yeah.
Yeah, yeah and then yeah. we saw that saw those uh, the best that Pfizer could put up in Australia to answer questions from their parliament. I mean, goodness me, if they were the best they could put up, I mean, what were the other ones? Like? I, I was really bemused by that. I, I, you know, the, uh, I was expecting, um, shall we say, a, a, a more um, considered, consider, considered, considered response. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah. say, if they were the best they'd got, I, I should have to think what the ones they rejected for uh, performing those tasks for them. Yeah, and um, they didn't but, didn't seem to have a lot of empathy in them, did they? I, I I don't remember detecting a lot of empathy, no. But of course, it's hard to tell on a video. I mean, I'm sure face to face they'd be very empathetic uh, individuals. Um, now, you've got this support from these esteemed academics and, and doctors. Presumably, you have the full resources of the British Civil Service at your disposal as well. Well, I have the um, no, no, I have my own parliamentary staff, um, but I do have the services of the impartial Library of the House of Commons. They're very good. I mean, they are impartial and they will research and get you any paper from anywhere okay. as fast as they possibly can. And they'll also do research for you. And if you want official figures, they will verify them for you. So that's that's an also a very good. A resource for all MPs. Uh, and, and so it's Friday, tomorrow's a really big day, uh, the biggest day I think since I've been in Parliament. But I've also got a big day next Tuesday because I've, I've secured a, a 10 minute rule motion where I will try to bring in, ask the House's permission to bring in a bill which would prevent the government from giving away our powers and sovereignty to the WHO. Um, we'll see how the House responds to that, but I won't be holding back on Tuesday about the risks to our democracy uh, and the relationship between the citizen and the state. Um, of course, they were talking about the new, the new international health regulation. Well, that'll be a good one. I'll see if I can dig that out for you for next week's show. Again, I've been working with Philip Crusoe for uh, quite a long time. He's, he's a great resource for keeping up to date. And there's actually a new version of the treaty has just been sent to me this morning. And it's uh, apparently it's, it's now called the post-pandemic Agreement. Well, John, I haven't agreed to it. Neither of my constituents, quite honestly. And I, I don't remember voting in a referendum unless I missed it. I, I don't remember it being in anybody's manifesto that we had yeah. to give this either. Um, I don't remember my member of parliament being given the opportunity to vote on it on my behalf. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that the that, that the government will actually want to allow Parliament to even have a vote on the amendments to the international health regulations. And given that they're so sweeping, they're not amendments. I mean, this is a fundamental change in the nature of the treaty. Um, they certainly should be. And I, I we just don't. I don't get. I don't. I don't get that. There's a threat to sovereignty. I don't get it. And it, and also, it's happening all over the world. I'm yeah. also been introduced. I'm hopefully next week going to be in a Zoom with some. Uh, African political leaders because it, we need to stop this. This is affecting not just our democracy in Europe and North America, but the whole of the world potentially. And if I can persuade some of those African leaders to resist, that's going to help all of us. Uh, I, I, absolutely. The idea that this is just being done completely below the radar, some might say surreptitiously or deviously. I don't know what language might be. Well, I, I, we've also we've got a, over 100,000 of course. Um, petition, uh, uh, signatures for the petition to have a debate. And it doesn't matter how many times I ask the Leader of the House or the Petitions Committee, there is no date for that debate. Uh, and we should be having it, you know, it's no good having it in June when we become subject to the regulations in May. No, they're too busy banning dogs here in the UK. 
I mean, this was Tess Laurie started this and myself you, and yourself and others promoted this and we're way over the 100,000. This is a fundamental principle of British democracy. Over 100,000 signatures, parliamentary debate, not in sight. What is going on here? Well, it's clearly there are, there are a number of issues that, uh, that our parliament doesn't want to talk about and mysteriously no other parliament wants to talk about. I mean, you're, you're well aware that they did have a petition in the upper house of the Australian Parliament, their Senate, a number of senators rightly asked for a debate on excess deaths and instead they had a debate on whether they should have a debate on excess deaths and the consensus of the senators was that they shouldn't have a debate on excess deaths and I would have thought in the time they had a debate over whether they should have a debate they could have actually had the debate but I mean that's the state of democracy and that's in Australia so something's going on uh, it, it would appear that our democracies have been usurped um, yeah. And uh, they're not certainly not working in the public's interest. So uh, I think we need to remind them uh, who they serve uh, and, and it's the public. Oh, he sounds like a conspiracy theorist to me. Debate about a debate. That was, it's just like something out of... People in the States won't know, but there was a show in the UK called Yes Minister. And uh, they would say, shall we have a leak inquiry? They'd say, oh, no, no, I want to find out what happened. You know, These things are just a way of kicking it into the long grass. It's just incredible. Andrew, I know you're a busy man, one of the busiest in the country. Thank you for what you're doing. Um, why, why are you in, what, what, aren't you in Parliament at the moment? Yes, I am. This is my, my new office. Uh, well, show us the view yeah. out the window then. I can't. Um, they moved me from uh, an office I'd been in for 11 and a half years uh, into this office, which is the furthest office from the chamber. Uh, it's in Richmond House, which used to be the Department of Health and uh, they boarded the window up in my office so I feel absolutely gutted for my staff because they don't get any natural um, daylight it's, it's it's unhealthy and also although I've been an MP for 13 and a half years I'm surrounded by MPs who've been here for uh, four years and their offices might be three times bigger than mine it's uh, when you're on the naughty step you're on the naughty step but I, I do feel sorry for my staff having to work in these conditions so you move from a really nice office in the parliamentary building to some. Well, what's, a, what's, what's a room called without a window? That's called a cell. A cell. I would call it a cell, Andrew. <laughs> never mind. Never mind. Uh, it really is is, is uh, incredible. Um, and the, 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 there's other bizarre um, coincidences uh, that that interfere with your uh, functionality that we could mention, but. Coincidences happen, we all know this, don't we? All, all the time, don't we? Yeah. Andrew, for tomorrow, countries, you know, I think the country's with you. I, I really feel... Um, I hope so. Th th there's mass ground groundswell of interest in this. I hope so, and I hope at the end of the debate, and for those colleagues who don't attend, I will be sending them a copy of the Hansard report. Yeah. I hope that there'll be a lot of colleagues on, on board with me and the people yeah. after the debate. Yeah. That's the whole point. Yeah. Thank you, John. Thank you for your support. As far as I can speak for those who can't speak for themselves, Andrew, thank you. Thank you too. Keep up the faith. Always. So here we are then. We're, that's where we are in the state of Britain then. People are starting to figure out democracy when it actually comes to something important or something that seems to go against an agenda that is occurring worldwide simultaneously doesn't seem to be the same sort of democracy that it would be if you were pushing the same narratives that mainstream media and television were pushing for. So let's see 
how he did, shall we? I'll just pause it just in case there's an advert. Hold on. Here we go. Yesterday on this channel. The turnout in Parliament was a complete disgrace, of course. Uh, I counted two Labour members of Parliament, no Liberal Democrats, no Scottish Nationalists, and I think there was about 12 to 14, maybe 15 Conservatives. Out of 650 MPs, this is a disgrace in my view. This is despite the fact that I'm pretty convinced that you have written to all 650 MPs, because this channel is viewed by all 650 constituents, we believe. And Mr Andrew Bridgen has contacted a lot of people to write to the Members of Parliament as well. I wrote to my Member of Parliament, he wasn't there. Quite incredible. Now, I've never heard the sound from the public gallery. At the start of the interview, you can hear the applause and the cheering from the public gallery and once or twice in the, uh, in the speech. Um, I've never heard that before because the public gallery is separated from the House of Commons by a glass screen. So they must have been making one heck of a noise to be heard through that. Um, they're, they're separated now for security reasons. Um, so huge turnout from the public. If you went well done, we don't have any photos from the public gallery. I don't know if it's allowed, but uh, we'll try and find out about that. But it must have been absolutely packed to overflowing to make that much noise. Mr. Bridges had 20 rejections, excess deaths. In other words, he's applied for the debate over 20 times. He's now got it. Um, this problem that no one wants to talk about that's affecting many countries. We've been let down by mainstream media. There's a lack of data, especially in young people. Lack of data in 15 to 19 year olds for 2021 still. Lack of data transparency, all sorts of problems that he turns out and uh, identifies. Basically a litany of failure. And um, he, he does uh, publish a data pack as well, which I've just asked him for the link to, so we'll be getting that pretty soon. Anyway, enough from me. Uh, here's the speech. It does last about 20 minutes, then we'll get the reply from the Minister, but well worth sticking around. Andrew Bridgen. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. We've experienced more excess deaths since July 2021 than the whole of 2020. Unlike the pandemic, however, these deaths are not disproportionately of the old. In other words, the excessive deaths are striking down people in the prime of life. But no one seems to care. I fear history will not judge this House kindly. Worse still, in a country supposedly committed to free and frank exchange of views, it appears that no one cares that no one cares. Well, I care, Mr Deputy Speaker, and I credit those members here in attendance today who also care. And I'd also like to thank the Honourable Member for Lincoln for his support, and I'm sorry that he couldn't attend today's debate. It's taken a lot of effort and more than 20 rejections to be allowed to raise this topic, but at last we're here to discuss the number of people dying. Nothing could be more serious. Numerous countries are currently gripped in a period of unexpected mortality and no one wants to talk about it. It's quite normal for death numbers to fluctuate up and down by chance alone. But what we're seeing here is a pattern repeated across countries and the rise has not let up. I'll give way to my honourable gentleman. I'm, I'm very grateful, and can I commend him for his, the tenacious way he's, he's battled on this particular um, issue? I, I certainly admire him uh, for that. I just wonder where, where he found the media was in all of this, because of course during the COVID pandemic, every day the media, particularly the BBC, couldn't wait to tell us how many people had died in that particular day without any context of those figures whatsoever. But they seem to have gone strangely quiet 
uh, over these uh, excess deaths now. Gentleman, for his intervention, he's absolutely right. The media have let the British public down badly. There will be a full press uh, pack going out to all media outlets following my speech, with all the evidence to back up all the claims I'll make in that speech. But I don't doubt there will be no mention of it in the mainstream media. You might think that a debate about excess deaths is going to be full of numbers. This speech does not have that many numbers because most of the important numbers are being kept hidden. Other data has been oddly presented in a distorted way and concerned people seeking to highlight important findings and ask questions have found themselves inexplicably under attack. Before debating excess deaths, it's important to understand how excess death is determined. To understand if there is an excess, by definition you need to estimate how many deaths it would have been expected. The Organisation of Economic Cooperation and Development used 2015 to 2019 as a baseline and the Government's Office of Health Disparities and Improvement uses 2015 to 2019 baseline modelled to allow for ageing and I've used that data here. Unforgivably, the Office of National Statistics have included deaths in 2021 as part of their baseline calculation for expected deaths as if there was anything normal about the deaths in 2021 by exaggerating the number of deaths expected, the number of excess can be minimised. Why would the ONS want to do that? There's just too much that we don't know, and it's not good enough, Mr Deputy Speaker. The ONS published promptly each week the number of deaths that were registered. And while this is commendable, it's not the data point that really matters. There's a total failure to collect, never mind publish, data on deaths that are referred for investigation to the coroner. Why does this matter? A referral means that it can be many months, and given the backlog, many years before a death is formally registered. Needing to investigate the cause of a death is fair enough. Failing to record when the death happened is not. Because of this problem, we actually have no idea how many people actually died in 2021. Even now, the problem is greatest for the younger age groups, where there's a higher proportion of deaths are investigated. This data failure is unacceptable. It must change. There's nothing in a coroner's report that can bring anyone back from the dead, and those deaths should be reported. The youngest age groups are important not only because they should have their whole lives ahead of them. If there is a new cause of excess mortality across the board, it would not be noticed so much in the older cohorts because the extra deaths would be drowned out amongst the expected deaths. However, in the youngest cohorts, that is not the case. There were nearly two extra deaths a day in the second half of 2021 among 15 to 19 year old males, but potentially even more if those referred to the coroner were fully included. In a judicial review of the decision to vaccinate yet younger children, the ONS refused in court to give anonymised details about these deaths. They admitted that the data they were withholding was statistically significant, and I quote, they said, the ONS recognises that more work could be undertaken to examine the mortality rates of young people in 2021 and intends to do so once more reliable data are available. How many more extra deaths in 15 to 19 year olds would it take to trigger such work? Surely the ONS should be desperately keen to investigate deaths in young men. Why else have an independent body charged with examining mortality data? Surely the ONS has a responsibility to collect data from the coroners to produce timely information. 
Let's move on to old people because most deaths in the old are registered promptly and we do have a better feel for how many older people are dying. Deaths from dementia and Alzheimer's show what we ought to expect. There was a period of high mortality coinciding with COVID and lockdowns, but ever since there have been fewer deaths than expected. After a period of high mortality, we expect and historically have seen a period of low mortality because those who have sadly died cannot die again. Those whose deaths were slightly premature because of COVID and lockdowns died earlier than they otherwise would have. This principle should hold true for every cause of death and every age group, but that's not what we're seeing. Even for the over 85 year olds, according to the Office of Health Improvement and Disparities, there were 8,000 excess deaths, 4% above the expected levels, for the 12 months starting in July 2020. That includes all of the autumn 2020 wave of COVID, when we had tiering, the second lockdown, and it includes all of the first COVID winter. However, for the year starting July 2022, there have been over 18,000 excess deaths in this age group, 9% above expected levels, more than twice as many in a period when there should have been a deficit. And when deaths from diseases previously associated with old age were actually fewer than expected. Mr Deputy Speaker, I've raised my concerns around NG163 and the use of midazolam and morphine, which may have caused and may still be causing premature deaths in the vulnerable. But that is uh, sadly a debate for another day. There were just over 14,000 excess deaths in the under 65 year olds before vaccination from April 2020 to the end of March 2021. However, since that time, there's been over 21,000 excess deaths, ignoring the registration delay problem. The majority, 58% of these deaths, were not attributed to COVID. We turned society upside down before vaccination for fear of excess deaths from COVID. Today we have substantially more excess deaths and in younger people. And there's complete and eerie silence, Mr Deputy Speaker. The evidence is unequivocal. There was a clear stepwise increase in mortality following the vaccine rollout. There was a reprieve in the winter of 2021-22 because there were fewer than expected respiratory deaths. But otherwise, the excess has been incessantly at this high level. Ambulance data for England provides another clue. Ambulance calls for life-threatening emergencies were running at a steady 2,000 calls per day until the vaccine rollout. From then it rose to 2,500 daily and calls have stayed at this level since. The surveillance systems designed to spot a safety problem have all flashed red, but no one's looking. Claims for personal independence payments for people who've developed a disability and cannot work rocketed with the vaccine rollout, and it's continued to rise ever since. The same was seen in the USA, also started with the vaccine rollout, not with COVID. A study to determine the vaccination status of a sample of such claimants would be relatively quick and inexpensive to perform. Yet nobody seems interested in ascertaining this vital information. Officials have chosen to turn a blind eye to this disturbing, irrefutable and frightening data. Much like Nelson did, but for, for far less honourable reasons, he would be ashamed of us, Mr Deputy Speaker. Furthermore, data that has been used to sing the praises of the vaccines is deeply flawed. Only one COVID-related death was prevented in each of the initial major trials that led to authorisation of the vaccines, and that is taking their data entirely at face value, whereas a growing number of inconsistencies and anomalies suggest we ought not to do this. Extrapolating from that, 
means that between 15,000 and 20,000 people had to be injected to prevent a single death from COVID. To prevent a single COVID hospitalisation, over 1,500 people needed to be injected. The trial data showed that one in 800 injected people had a serious adverse event, meaning they were hospitalised or had a life-changing or life-threatening condition. The risk of this was twice as high as the chance of preventing a COVID hospitalisation. We're harming one in 800 people to supposedly save one in 20,000. This is madness. The strongest claims have too often been based on modelling carried out on the basis of flawed assumptions. Where observational studies have been carried out, researchers will correct for age and comorbidities to make the vaccines look better. However, Mr Deputy Speaker, they never correct for socio-economic or, or ethnic differences that would make the vaccines look worse. This matters. For example, claims of higher mortality in less vaccinated regions in the United States took no account of the fact that this was the case before the vaccines were rolled out. That is why studies that claim to show the vaccines prevented COVID deaths also showed a marked effect in them preventing non-COVID deaths. The prevention of non-COVID deaths is always a statistical illusion and claims of prevented COVID deaths should not be assumed when that illusion has not been corrected for. And when it is corrected for, the claims of efficacy for the vaccines vanish with it. COVID disproportionately killed people from ethnic minorities and lower socio-economic groups. During the 2020, during the pandemic, the deaths among the most deprived were up by 23%, compared to 17% for the least deprived. However, since 2022, the pattern has reversed with 5% excess mortality amongst the most deprived, compared to 7% among the least deprived. These deaths are being caused by something different. In 2020, the excess was highest in the oldest cohorts, and there were fewer than expected deaths amongst the younger age groups. But since 2022, the 50 to 64-year-old cohort has had the highest excess mortality. Even the youngest age groups are now seeing substantial excess with a 9% excess in the under 50s since 2022, compared to 5% now in the over 75 group. Despite London being a younger region, the excess in London is only 3%, whereas it's higher in every more heavily vaccinated region of the UK. And it should be noted, Mr Deputy Speaker, that London is famously the least vaccinated region in the UK by some margin. Studies comparing regions on a larger scale show the same thing. There are studies from the Netherlands, Germany and the whole world, each showing that the highest mortality after vaccination was seen in the most heavily vaccinated regions. So we need to ask, what are people dying of? Since 2022, there has been 11% excess in ischemic heart disease deaths and a 16% excess in heart failure deaths. In meantime, cancer deaths, only 1% above expected levels, which is further evidence that this is not simply some other factor that affects deaths across the board, such as a failing to account for an aging population or a failing NHS. In fact, the excess itself has a seasonality with a peak in the winter months. The fact it returns to baseline levels in summer is a further indication that this is not due to some statistical error or an ageing population alone. Dr Claire Craig from the Heart Group first highlighted a stepwise increase in cardiac arrest calls after the vaccine rollout in May 2021, and Heart have repeatedly raised concerns about the increase in cardiac deaths 
and they have every reason to be concerned. Four participants in the vaccine group of the Pfizer trial died from cardiac arrest, compared to only one in the placebo group. Overall, there were 21 deaths in the vaccine group up to March 2021, compared to 17 in the placebo group. And there are serious anomalies about the reporting of the deaths within this trial, with the deaths in the uh, vaccine group taking much longer to report than those in the placebo group. And that's highly suggestive, Mr Deputy Speaker, of a significant bias in what was supposed to be a blinded trial. An Israeli study clearly showed an increase in cardiac hospital attendances among 18 to 39-year-olds that correlated with vaccination, not with COVID. There have now been several post-mortem studies demonstrating a causal link between vaccination and coronary artery disease leading to death up to four months after the last dose. And we need to remember that the safety trial was cut short to only two months. So there's no evidence of any vaccine safety beyond that point. The decision to unblind the trials after two months and vaccinate the placebo group is nothing less than a public health scandal. Everyone involved failed in their duty to do the truth. But no one cares, Mr Deputy Speaker. The one place that can help us understand exactly what caused this is Australia. Australia had almost no COVID when vaccines were first introduced, making them the perfect control group. The state of South Australia had only a thousand cases of COVID across its whole population by December 2021, before Omicron arrived. What was the impact of vaccination there? For 15 to 44 year olds, there was historically 1300 emergency cardiac presentations a month. With vaccine rollout in the under 50s, this rocketed to 2,172 cases in November 2021 in this age group alone, a 67% more than usual. Overall, there were 17,900 South Australians who had a cardiac emergency in 2021, compared to only 13,250 in 2018, a 35% increase. It is clearly the vaccine that must be the number one suspect in this, and it cannot be dismissed as just a coincidence. Australian mortality overall has increased from early 2021, and the increase is due to cardiac deaths. These excess deaths are not due to an ageing population because there are fewer deaths in the diseases of old age. These deaths are not an effect of COVID because they've happened in places where COVID has not reached. And they're not due to low statin prescriptions or undertreated hypertension, as Chris Whitty would suggest, because prescriptions did not change. And in any effect would have taken many years and been very small. The prime suspect must be something that was introduced to the population as a whole, something novel. The prime hypothesis must be the experimental COVID-19 vaccines. The ONS published a data set of deaths by, vac by vaccinated and unvaccinated. At first glance, it appears to show that the vaccines are safe and effective. However, there were several huge problems with how they presented that data. One was that for the first three-week period after injection, the ONS claimed there were only a tiny number of deaths. The number the ONS would normally predict to occur in a single week. Where were the deaths from the usual causes? When this was raised, the ONS claimed that the sickest people did not get vaccinated, and therefore people were uh, taking the vaccination were, were self-selecting for those least likely to die. Not only is this not the case in the real world, with even hospices heavily vaccinating their residents, but the ONS's own data showed that the proportion of sickest people was equal in the vaccinated and unvaccinated groups. This inevitably raises serious questions about the ONS's data presentation. 
There were so many problems with the methodology used by the ONS that the statistics regulator agreed that the ONS data could not be used to assess vaccine efficacy or safety. That tells you something about the ONS. Consequently, Hart asked the UK Health Security Agency to provide the data they had on people who had died and therefore needed to be removed from their vaccination data set. This request has been repeatedly refused, with excuses given including the false claim that anonymising this data will be equivalent to creating it, even though there is case law that anonymisation is not considered creation of new data. Mr Deputy Speaker, I believe if this data was released it would be damning. Some claim that so many lives have been saved by mass vaccination that any amount of harm, suffering and death caused by the vaccines is a price worth paying. They're delusional, Mr Deputy Speaker. The claim of 20 million lives saved is based on now discredited models which assume that Covid waves do not peak without intervention. There have been numerous waves globally that now demonstrate that is not the case and it was also based on there having been more than half a million lives saved in the UK. That's more than the worst case scenario predicted uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. For the claim to have been true, the rate at which Covid killed people will have to have taken off dramatically at the beginning of 2021 with the, in the absence of vaccination. This is ludicrous and it bears no relationship to the truth. In the real world, Australia, New Zealand and South Korea had a mortality rate of 400 deaths per million up to the summer of 2022, after they were first hit with Omicron. So how does that compare? With the Wuhan strain, France and Europe as a whole had a mortality rate of under 400 deaths per million up to the summer of 2020. Australia, New Zealand and South Korea were all heavily vaccinated before infection. So tell me, where, where was the benefit? The UK had just over 800 deaths per million up to the summer of 2020, so twice as much. But we know that Omicron is half as deadly as the Wuhan variant. The death rates per million are the same before and after vaccination. So where was the benefits of vaccination? The regulators have failed in their duty to protect the public. They've allowed these novel products to skip crucial safety testing by letting them be described as vaccines. They've failed to insist on safety testing being done in the years since the first temporary emergency authorisation. Even now, no one can tell you how much spike protein is produced on vaccination and for how long. Yet another example of where there is no data for me to share with the House. And when it comes to properly recording deaths due to vaccination, the system's broken. Not a single doctor registered a death from a rare brain, brain pot before docs in Scandinavia forced the issue and the MHRA acknowledged the problem. Only then did these deaths start to be certified by doctors in the UK. It turns out that the doctors were waiting for permission from the regulator and the regulator was waiting to be alerted by the doctors. This is a lethal circularity. Furthermore, coroners have written Regulation 28 reports highlighting deaths from vaccination to prevent further deaths. Yet the MHRA said in a response to an FOI that they had not received any of them. The system we have in place is clearly not functioning to protect the public. The regulators also missed the fact that the Pfizer trial in the Pfizer trial, the vaccine was made for the trial participants in a highly controlled environment, in stark contrast to the manufacturing process used for the public rollout, which was based on a completely different technology. And just, only, just over 200 participants were given the same product that was given to the public. But not only was the data from these people never compared to those in the trial for efficacy and safety, but the MHRA have admitted that they dropped the requirement to provide the data. That means there was never a trial on the Pfizer product that was actually rolled out to the public. And that product has never been compared to the product that was actually trialled. 
The vaccine mass production processes use vats of Escherichia coli and present a risk of contamination with DNA from the bacteria as well as bacterial cell walls which can cause dangerous reactions. This is not theoretical, Mr Deputy Speaker. This is now sound evidence that's been replicated by several labs across the world and the mRNA vaccines uh, were contaminated by DNA which far exceeded the usual permissible levels. Given that this DNA is enclosed in lipid nanoparticle delivery system, and it's, it's arguable that even the permissible levels have been far too high, these lipid nanoparticles are known to enter every organ of the body, as well as this potentially causing some of the acute adverse reactions seen, there is a serious risk that this foreign bacterial DNA inserting itself into human DNA. And will anybody investigate? No, they won't. I'll give well on that point. I'm conscious that time is tight. I, I, I uh, recognise that Honourable Gentleman is making a very, very powerful case. Does he agree with me that the government should be looking at this properly and should commission a review into the excess tests, partly so that we can reassure our constituents that the case he's making is not, in fact, valid and that the, and that the vaccines have no cause uh, behind these excess deaths? I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his support on this topic and of course that is what exactly any responsible government should do. I wrote to the Prime Minister on the 7th of August 2023 with all the evidence of this but sadly, Mr Deputy Speaker, I, I still await a response. What will it to take to stop these products? Their complete failure to stop infection was not enough and we all know plenty of vaccinated people who have caught and spread COVID. The mutation of the virus to a weaker variant, Omicron, that, that, that wasn't enough. The increasing evidence of the serious harms to those of us that were vaccinated, that's not enough. And now the cardiac deaths and the deaths of young people is apparently not enough either. It's high time these experimental vaccines were suspended and a full investigation into the harms they've caused initiated. History will be a harsh judge if we don't start using evidence-based medicine. We need to return to basic science, basic ethics immediately, which means listening to all voices and investigating all concerns. In conclusion, Mr Deputy Speaker, the experimental COVID-19 vaccines are not safe and they're not effective. Despite there only being limited interest in the Chamber from colleagues, I and mean, I'm very grateful for those who have attended, we can see from the public gallery there is considerable public interest. I would implore all members of the House present and those not support calls for a three-hour debate on this important issue. And Mr Deputy Speaker, this might be the first debate on excess deaths in our Parliament. Indeed, it might be the first debate on excess deaths in the world, but very sadly, I promise you, it won't be the last. Well, I thought that was a pretty powerful speech, quite difficult to listen to in some respects, because remember, we're dealing with uh, human lives here. These aren't just numbers. Uh, the following response is from a junior government minister, obviously the Secretary of uh, Health didn't uh, turn up. Thank you, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker. Yeah, I thought that was a great speech as well. And there was the whole stuff about the ONS and uh, the lack of their um, stability in reliability in their numbers was news to me. Um, a lot there to break down. I think they're in the phase where if you asked most people, especially ones in Britain, do you think government fudges the numbers for its own benefit? Yes. Do you think government would fudge the numbers to that extent? And considering that you can get sued for slipping over a, even when there's a slippery when wet sign in a supermarket and sue somebody, bearing in mind all the provisions they've got in place not to be sued, it does make you wonder how far in advance with all the data 
that Andrew has just shown, if that's accurate and true, then exactly how much did they fudge in advance and continuing to ignore afterwards? So I think that there is a, a bridge, well there is a gap, there is a gap between what the public think, how bad their politicians are, and how bad they possibly could be. And Andrew Bridgen might bridge the gap between how bad you think they are and how bad they might actually be. So let's continue now for the response. Can I start by congratulating the Honourable Member for North West Leicestershire for securing uh, this important debate. I do only have five minutes of the 30 minutes uh, debate to respond, so I will try and cover all the points uh, if I can. can that's I start by huge cheering. I don't know if you can hear that, but that sounds like huge cheering in the public debate there. Correct. We have seen an increase in excess deaths in the last year. However, his analysis is uh, something I, I will disagree with because the causes um, that he refers to um, are, are simply um, uh, do not uh, bear to, to the statistics that we have. There have been a combination. The body language there, the stumbling, the oh, I'm going to have to try and sell this crap to the audience. <laughs> of factors contributing to the increase in excess deaths, including in the last year. You should look at John Campbell's face here. Uh, it's similar to my thoughts, his facial expressions, uh, purely on my speculative opinion on what body language means. Flu prevalence, the ongoing challenges of COVID-19, we had a strep A outbreak, and uh, conditions such as heart disease, which he touched on, diabetes and cancer, uh, because we had virtually a, a lockdown of routine health services over a two-year period, many of those are now coming forward with uh, increased morbidity and mortality as a, a result of that. And starting with winter flu, the number of positive tests last year peaked at 31.8%, the highest seen in the last six years. And interim analysis um, from the UK HSA indicated the number of deaths in England associated with flu was far higher than pre-pandemic levels. So excess deaths due to flu last winter is sadly part of the answer. And he touched on the independent body of the ONS. Well, is, is that the flu that came back having no deaths at all when COVID was there? It suddenly switched back on again now, has it? Their figures show that the leading cause of death in England is still dementia, which accounts for about 10% of all deaths. But they do also look at the cause of excess deaths. And if you look at the figures uh, as of June this year, the top three causes of excess deaths are respiratory illnesses, dementia and ischemic heart disease, which is often caused by uh, an increase in cholesterol, uh, smoking, um, not having a blood pressure. So there's a number of reasons and they are often... Dr John Campbell is laughing at this point conditions that people have had for years, decades in fact, some people, and are not uh, acute illnesses. Now, just to touch on, on, on some of the points um, that he has uh, made in, in his points uh, in the three minutes I have left uh, to respond. Firstly, um, turning to uh, the importance of vaccination, I think you know it, it's very easy to say that there's a, a prevalence of high rates of COVID vaccination in people who have died, and that is correct. When 93.6% of your population has had at least one dose of the vaccine, there will be a high rate of vaccination in excess deaths. That is different to causality. I completely agree with them as a high prevalence rate. That is not the same as saying that that is the cause of those deaths. And the Office for National Statistics um, has looked um, then actually 
that those who've been vaccinated generally had a lower all-cause mortality rate than the unvaccinated people uh, since the booster introduction in 2021. And a recent study in... I covered some of the numbers from the ONS and, uh, well, I think perhaps go back and look at that podcast or listen to that podcast, I should say. Paul actually found that um, when they looked at uh, uh, patients who had uh, recovered from COVID who were unvaccinated, they showed an increased risk of by 56% more uh, to be at risk of cardiac complications a year later compared to those who were vaccinated. So there is conflicting data on this, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing with him, but I think we need to have a robust conversation on this and not to assume that one um, uh, side uh, necessarily has. That's a fair point. Uh, A nice, robust conversation would be handy, and it would be easier to have if your government wasn't censoring everyone that disagreed with them. Um, All the answers. Now, just to touch on a couple of points that he made around vaccine safety. Now, the regulator has been uh, taking... Or at least, should I say, pally pally, um, you know, go and look at Nick Clegg's uh, involvement with Facebook, for example, pally pally with social media who censors those phrases. That would be a more accurate way of saying that the government does it. Although we have listened to many, many reports in the US about how the security service got involved with social media. We've played those Senate hearings here on this podcast previously. As to the state of it in Britain, um, we shall see. Out of those who report adverse events, and I would encourage anyone who's had a side effect from any of the vaccines to use the yellow card system to report it to their GP, because when they have been reported, the MHRA has taken action. If you look in April 21, uh, the MHRA reacted to rare cases of concurrent thrombosis and thrombocytopenia following the AZ vaccine, uh, which resulted in um, uh, adults under 30 not being offered that vaccine. And in May 21, that was increased to the adults uh, under 40. And particularly to the MRA vaccine, in June uh, 21, following reports of a link between um, COVID vaccines and myocarditis, uh, the Commission on Human Medicines conducted an independent review, which found the incidence of this side effect was rare, but it was between one and two cases per 100,000. So when there are concerns, absolutely we must um, uh, investigate those. There is no doubt about it. And for those that have experienced um, rare uh, side effects from the vaccine, we had a debate earlier this afternoon about that. We do have the Vaccine Damage Payment Scheme, which um, offers a payment of 120,000 if that is uh, one showed to be... Order, order. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'm terribly sorry. The House stands adjourned. Well, there we have it. That was the speech and the uh, what passes as a, as a reply from the junior government minister. I will be giving full details of the press pack as soon as I get that. And uh, I'm just so impressed with the, uh, the the response from the public gallery there, despite the fact you couldn't really hear it properly behind a glass screen. But um, the, the, the the contrast between the apathy from members of parliament and the the understanding of the importance of this from members of the public, quite quite staggering, really. Some might say that the government in my country is disconnected from the people. Oh, oh I thought he was leaving the video there. Oh, he is. OK, no, no, that is the end of it. All right. Now, let's have something a lot more cheery, shall we? Let's listen to how modern society will collapse in the coming years. Here you go. 
Celebrate good times. I should probably shouldn't sing that. Probably get flagged for singing copyright issues. Real has the progress and prosperity of the last century been, in your opinion? So this is Peter Zihan, uh, an expert on geopolitical analysts. Uh, he talks about globalism, past and future, and we'll just listen to that for the next uh, four minutes or so, and then you can go and listen to the whole hour conversation for yourself. If you wish, the links will be found in the comment section. It's been fantastic. Uh, this has been the greatest time to be alive. The combination of the American security umbrella plus globalization uh, has changed the way we lived. It's allowed everyone to benefit from global trade. Um, before we had that, if you didn't have oil locally, you didn't have transport fuel. If you didn't have coal locally, you didn't have electricity. If you didn't have good food locally, you didn't have a population. Globalization, safe globalization, enabled anyone to trade anything that they could produce even if it wasn't a commodity, and join the system. It was like everyone had won World War II all at once. It's, it's been a great ride, and now it's ending. Was it inevitable that it was going to end? If you'd gone back a century ago and been able well, to well, change to this talk. policy now, globally, Gritt could you have done something differently back then? Uh, a century ago, probably not. There's a, there's a couple problems here. So first of all, when globalization really got going in the 50s, we started moving off the farms and into the cities to take manufacturing jobs. Now, when you live on a farm, kids are free labor. You have a whole scat of them. But when you move into a condo, kids are just really loud, expensive, mobile pieces of furniture. And adults aren't idiots, so we had fewer. You play that forward for 70 years, and it's not that we're running out of children. That happened 40 years ago. It's that we're running out of mature adults. And so the economic model of globalization is consumption-based, and it just doesn't work without people. So we've always known we were going to get here in the end. Just happen. Uh, the Americans forced the issue. At the end of the war, we told everyone that we would patrol the global ocean so that anyone could send any cargo ship anywhere to trade in any product with any partner. That's what made globalization work. Now, we didn't do this because we were nice. We didn't do this because it was a trade program. We did this as a bribe. This is what we gave everyone so that they would join us against the Soviets. The Soviet Union collapsed in 1992. So Americans have been electing ever more isolationist and populist leaders ever since. So for you to believe that globalization can continue, you have to believe that A, it doesn't require consumption anymore, and B, that the Americans will continue to bleed and die so that the Chinese can get energy. You know, that's a bad bet. Before we start talking about where we're at and what that means for the future, is there anything else that we need to understand about how we got here, about any of the fundamental principles that we're going to be talking about? I will bring them up as we go, but those are the two big things. The demographic flip, well past the point of no return, and the Americans have largely checked out. Mm. You say that 2019 is the best that the world will ever be. What was particularly special about that one year? So think of your demographic profile as a pyramid. Children on the bottom, retirees at the top, mortality built it into a pyramid. As we uh, industrialized and urbanized, it became more of a column and then an, eventually an inverted V with more mature adults than children. In 2019, it was the last year before the baby boomers really got into retirement in a big way. 
So we had this massive post-war generation throughout the Western world that were all, on average, 63. So <laughs> they hadn't retired yet. And all of their investments and all the retirement savings were churning along, providing capital for the whole system. We still had a huge amount of consumption out in the world. But you fast forward three years, this year, on average, they turned 66. So it's over. We, we've lose their consumption. We lose their investment. They have to liquidate all their stocks and bonds and go into T-bills and cash because they won't have the ability to recover from a, a crash. Uh, and we're also seeing some of the fastest demographic aging in human history throughout the developing world, with China being the far most advanced. So we're losing the investors, we're losing the workers, we're losing the consumers all at the same time. On top of that, we had Trump, and we had COVID, and now we've got Biden, and then we had Brexit. And everything that used to tie it all together has been broken apart either on purpose or just because of the strategic trends that were already in play. We're never going back. Consumers, investors, and workers. Those are the three main things that people of working age and above school age give us? Absolutely. And we're running out of all of them. And you need those to continue to grease the system. They're the people that drive not only creativity in terms of pushing technological progress forward and bits and pieces, but they also inject capital into the system. They're the ones that are spending on consumer goods, so on and so forth. So they just provide lubric like financial lubrication and also uh, the um, worker power, the employee, employee power. Right, you can so I'll leave that there. So if you want to say what his vision for the Western world is and why. You can look at the clip for yourself. The video is by Chris Williamson on YouTube and it's called Brace Yourself for the Collapse of Modern Society, Peter Zeehan. So, nice, happy podcast for you today. Hope you've enjoyed yourself. Thanks very much for listening. Cheers. <laughs>